0: looking at Black girls and Black girls' bodies, one of the really sort of negative, deleterious effects of the what is termed the adultification of Black girls is that then we don't get to see their inner lives, right? We don't get to see, you know, the richness and vibrancy of their inner lives. We also don't get to see their vulnerability. And I think there's a real danger there that, you know, as someone who is not part of the medical community, I can't comment on it, but as someone who has experienced this as a patient, right, you know, often, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and I think it really prevents a lot of people from seeking medical care. And so then it becomes a systemic issue. I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a
1: book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre-order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. And in today's episode, I'm so glad to be bringing my conversation with author Mecca Jamila Sullivan. Mecca is the author of the novel Big Girl, which is a New York Times Editor's Choice Award winner, a 2023 Next Generation Indie Book Award winner, and well, there are a lot of awards and acclaims that Mecca has gotten for this book. It's fantastic. Mech and I met, gosh, a few years ago now at an independent bookshop right outside Philadelphia named Ida's. And there she was giving a book reading. It had just come out and it was in hardcover. Circle back over a year later and it did so well that it's now out in softcover. When she recently came through Philadelphia, she was nice enough to join me in my home studio and we met, we talked, and we did a deep dive into the novel. Mecca is from Harlem and other parts of New York City. She has family in Philadelphia. She currently lives in Washington, D.C., where she's an associate professor of English at Georgetown University. When I asked Mecca to describe the book, Big Girl, this is what she said. It's a novel about bodies, about women, about Black women in particular, queer people, people of color, and the paths we take across generations to make space for ourselves in the world. And it follows a young girl named Malaya from the time she's a big black eight-year-old girl to the time she's a very big black queer teenager. When we get to the conversation, I've asked Mecca about Malaya, her inner world, and her strength. As a reader, there's so much you feel for Malaya. And you've spoken about her internal resistance to what's going on around her, to the voices, to what's being told to her by her parents, Mamere, her grandmother, Doctors, teachers. Can you speak a little bit more about this internal resistance that we see throughout that then sort of opens up by the end of the book?
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think that, you know, Malaya is a character who she is very much connected with her inner life and her inner world. This is just her personality, right? Again, she, you know, when she's observing the world around her, she's constantly sort of filtering it through the prism of, you know, of sort of color and food and, you know, music, right? All of the things that give her joy. And what she ends up sort of discovering is that there is this real dissonance between the vibrancy and the magic and the imagination of her inner world and what people expect of her in the world around her. And so there's that kind of clash that we see intensify. And as she becomes a teenager, it's reaching a height, right? Her weight is reaching its height. And at the same time, you know, there's a sense of urgency among the people around her that she has to change, but she's constantly sort of, you know, she she loves herself in a certain way, right? She sort of, she loves her world. She loves especially her inner world and she doesn't want to lose that. And of course, the pathways to change that are being presented to her are about changing herself, right? You should be thinking about womanhood differently. You should be thinking about pleasure differently. You should be thinking about your body differently. And this is what's going to yield the outcome of the bodily change that everyone wants for you. But Malaya is really resisting that because she knows there's something very valuable in the way she looks at the world and in her voice, honestly, right? So a lot of this is for her about a coming to voice and insistence upon, you know, the value of her voice and of her inner life and sort of bringing that outward instead of changing who she is to meet an external standard.
1: Yeah. It's this strength that maybe externally someone would be like, I'm sure she doesn't feel strong, but it's this internal strength. It's remarkable. You're writing and you really hit all five senses. Like we taste food. We smell smells. We feel touch. And we hear voice. It's remarkable. I obviously very much enjoyed the read. Listeners are like, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, you mentioned funny, funny things like, marshmallow fluff. Like I totally ate marshmallow, like pink fluff. I wanted
0: pink fluff. Even Uh, though it didn't taste strawberry, it just looked like pink. But it was pink, right? You know, pink can be a taste, I imagine, you know. (laughs) And then you mentioned Cool Whip and, you know,
1: a bunch of foods that she would get, for example, at the bodega or at the diners where she lived. I'm interested in, she went to her room a lot and Mm -hmm. in her room she would draw and she would use her pastels. And I'm wondering, as the author, writer, sharing her voice, what role did her drawing and her
0: use of art mean to her? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, thank you so much for what you've said about the senses, right? I mean, I think this is my goal as a writer is to really invite readers into Malaya's world. And, you know, especially as a young girl, Malaya's world is a sensory place, right? And which to me connects with the other part of the question. What I want to do in this novel is center Malaya's experience of the world, right? You know, she becomes increasingly aware of herself as an object, right? Something to be criticized, something to be evaluated, something to be weighed, right? Sort of, you know, figuratively and literally. And yet, you know, that part of the resistance is that she's constantly seeing herself as the center of the world, right? And she's sort of fighting for the right to see herself as the center of the world. What that means to her is her sensory sort of perception of the world, how she feels, what she tastes, what she hears, right? All of that. She's fighting to sort of claim that as the central locus of her experience of the world around her. And so I really wanted to kind of recreate that for the reader, right? She is somebody who's always listening to music. She's always thinking about music and she's always observing visually. And so as a visual artist, for her, this is one of the ways of sort of expressing her perspective on the world rather than deferring to the world's perspective on her. So one example is she, you know, as a young girl, she becomes curious about women's bodies, right? And so she's sort of trying to figure out part of this is about, okay, everyone's telling me like, this is what a lady is supposed to be. This is what a lady is supposed to wear. This is how she sits. So she begins to study women's bodies in that way. But she also is aware that she also takes pleasure in sort of observing women's bodies, right? And that too becomes a kind of forbidden, illicit pleasure for her drawing is a way of kind of engaging in in that the pleasure of the sensory world right those pleasures that are forbidden to her right visual art allows her to do that and to express what is inside of her again rather than just sort of being an object for outside consumption
1: yeah thanks for bringing up the sense of sound of listening and there's a beat throughout the mm-hmm. book there is music that is injected. It's a little medical term right there, injected. <laughs> but throughout, and you make references to many musical icons mm-hmm. of that era. For listeners, again, who haven't read the book yet, like tell us about some of these musical artists and why they're important
0: to you and why they're important to the book. Yeah, So Malaya becomes a hip hop head, right? She, you know, she's coming of age in the 90s. And so this is a moment where, you know, hip hop is really sort of flourishing, right? If we have, you know, the sort of most central figure for her is the late, great, notorious B.I.G., who represents so much for her, right? Biggie Smalls. He represents a kind of, you know, sort of an insistence on a, a kind of classic, a kind of irreverent sort of voicing, right? right but also a kind of complexity an interior complexity where we see you know this is a figure who makes his name as a kind of, you know, a thug in a way, right? Like a drug dealer, right? That, that kind of image is very important to his brand. And at the same time, there's a real vulnerability in his lyrics. There's a sense of desire, right? There's a kind of erotic, you know, sort of appeal. All of this in this fat Black body becomes really important to Malaya, right? So, you know, that sense of, you know, a model for a different way of doing gender, a different way of doing identity, a different way of doing sexuality, and and a different way of doing voicing, a kind of complex interior life that's being expressed through this amazing wordplay, right? Hip hop is really important to her. But another thing that's happening with hip hop in the 90s is that we're starting to see samples, right? The music is sampling funk music and soul music of the 70s. And so it also is a kind of intergenerational connection where she's able to listen to music that is very much her own, right? And that lyrically sort of speaks to her and to her generation, but also musically connects with the music that her parents listened to, right? And the music that she grew up hearing her father play, especially. And so then, you you know, you've got, you know, Mtume's Juicy Fruit, right? And how that sample is, you know, it comes out in Notorious B.I.G.'s Juicy. Lots of sort of callbacks to Stevie Wonder, to, you know, to soul and funk music of the 70s and 80s that really unite the family and that connect Malaya to her community in Harlem.
1: Yeah. Risa sometimes speaks about Risa in third person, and that's a perfect lead-in mm. to, on one of your podcast discussions, you talked about your writing in the third person. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can go a little deeper into that.
0: Yeah, definitely. So this novel really just sort of came to me in the third person. The original point-of-view strategy or voice strategy was actually different. And it, it would shift in point-of-view from Malaya to her mother her father and Shanice her best friend and love interest but even throughout those point of view shifts in those earlier drafts it was always in the third person and you know there's really not much I can say to explain why except for that that's just sort of how the voice came to me in other works of fiction of mine you know the first person i would say in fact i i generally i think maybe more compelled toward the first person you know i'm very much a voice driven writer And when I hear the voice of a character, it usually does come in the first person. But I think with this novel, I think part of why the third person, you know, if I were to really sort of step back and sort of think about it with my literary critical, you know, hat right on, I think part of why the third person is important here is because there are moments when the narrator needs to be able to convey language that Malaya doesn't quite have access to yet. And so that happens in the first chapter, for example, where, you know, Malaya's at this Weight Watchers meeting. and the grown women at the meeting, she's eight years old, but everyone else is, you know, grown, right? And they're being asked to think about their trigger food. First of all, the language of a trigger food doesn't compute for her, right? What does that even mean? What is, how could a food trigger you, right? What does it mean to be triggered that's such a violent term and food is so great, right? So even just sort of trying to figure that out. And she doesn't have the language to describe what her actual trigger would be, even if she understood the concept of a trigger. And so the narrator can intervene and say, you know, she doesn't have that language, she doesn't know the words profusion or abundance or glut, right? The only word she knows is more. And I needed a narrator that could supply some of the language that Malaya doesn't have. And so I think that's why I was sort of compelled toward the third person for this novel. But my hope is that the reader still gets a sense of Malaya's voice, even through that third-person narration. You know, and that that's what's cool about a semi-omniscient third-person narrator. You know, they can be sort of closely aligned with your character but then they can sort of jump ahead, they can depart, they can, you know, if you if you're able to kind of, you know, work through the narration. And if you're if you're familiar enough with the narrator, you can make it do kind of what you want it to do. And that's what I was aiming for with this novel.
1: Yeah. The Weight Watchers meeting, which is the opening scene. And in other discussions, I've heard you have people focus a lot on that. And I don't want to focus too much on that, but what I'd like to focus on is this almost like forced maturation. Mm of girls, but specifically mm-hmm. of young Black girls. People speak a lot about this in medicine mm-hmm. and in even sort of the policing absolutely. of Black girls and Black
0: girls' bodies. And I'd love your thoughts on that and the extent to which that is brought out in the book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think it's a real issue and I think you're right in the medical community specifically, right? I think, you know, historically Black women have always been seen as, especially in the U.S., but really in, you know, in the world, Black women have been seen as sort of a category apart from the category of womanhood, right? And the same is true for Black children. I mean, this, you know, dates way back to times of enslavement and colonization. Sabina Strings has done excellent work around sort of fat phobia and its connection to and its origins in racism and how some of that works out in medical histories. Absolutely, I think, you know, looking at Black girls and Black girls' bodies, one of the really sort of negative deleterious effects of the what is termed the adultification of Black girls is that then we don't get to see their inner lives, right? We don't get to see, you know, the richness and vibrancy of their inner lives. but We also don't get to see their vulnerability. And I think there's a real danger there that, you know, as someone who is not part of the medical community, I can't comment on it, but as someone who has experienced this as a patient, right, you know, often, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think it really prevents a lot of people from seeking Medical care. And so then it becomes a systemic issue. Let's talk a little bit about the doctors in the book. There
1: is a pediatrician, there's a surgeon, a gastric bypass surgeon named Dr. Sawyer, and a therapist, Dr. Winborn. Mm-hmm. And um, we can talk about each of them individually, but I'll, I'll just say that overall, it's, I think, very accurate and, of course, exquisitely disappointing, specifically mm. the pediatrician and the surgeon, not her therapist. And the shaming, again, this expectation of her understanding, but mm-hmm. she's still a girl. And specifically, I think what enraged me regarding the surgeon, and again, very credible scenario, was that they were so excited, yes. almost like she was going to be their experiment. Yes. She was going to be their N of one
0: youngest patient to ever get a gastric bypass. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I'm pleased to hear that this was unsettling, right? And also that it sort of rang true. I've heard that from a lot of folks, and and that's one of those moments that really does overlap with my own experience. And so it absolutely was true for me. And that sense of excitement, you know, there's a historical root there, right? I mean, we can think about Anarcha, you know, we can think about how Black women's bodies have been sort of seen as material for scientific innovation, for research, right? And how Black women's bodies then are seen as sort of, again, separate from human and this is about objectification, but it really is also about sort of, you know, a kind of commodification, right, of black women's bodies as sort of a resource, essentially. And of course, there's an excitement there, right? For you know, that this doctor is sort of seeing Malaya not as a person, not as a child, which is what she is, but as an opportunity for his personal sort of professional advancement and also for is a resource for sort of the growth of of science, right? And in that scene, we really see Malaya's mother, who also is a doctor, right? She's a psychologist. And so we see her really sort of struggling with, on one hand, caring for her daughter, wanting the best for her daughter and wanting the best outcome for her daughter's body. As a scientist herself, she trusts science and she wants to trust science. And yet she too, you know, she perceives, we were talking earlier about sort of intuition and energies and spidey sense, right? In that sort of non-scientific way, she also has information about what this figure, what this doctor actually wants for her daughter, and she doesn't trust it. And so she has to really decide, she has to make a very important and very sort of quick decision in a way, whether she's going to allow her daughter to be vulnerable to this person who wants to, you know, again, objectify her daughter and her daughter's body for the greater good of science, or whether she wants to sort of trust herself and trust her daughter and try to find another way. Yeah.
1: And yet when they left, her mom kept bringing it back up and wanting her to think about it and Dr. Sawyer. And so I almost felt protective because her mom like didn't trust him in the moment, but still was almost willing to maybe go back and entertain mm-hmm. him as opposed to even, I don't know. It just really, I was like this sense of mom not protecting daughter yeah, after the fact.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think she's really, again, she's really the mother. Naila is really struggling in that moment, she decides, okay, we're going to leave. And part of what's happening here to the conversation about voicing is that the thing that sort of tips Naila off finally, that it's time to leave this appointment at least, is that the doctor refuses to acknowledge that she's got a doctorate degree and also really seems to not be trying at all to learn either of their names, right? And so she's like, I cannot entrust my daughter to this man at this moment. And yet when they leave, What occurs to her is the problem of Malaya's weight hasn't gone away, right? And she still is seeing it as a problem. She still is sort of plagued by some of the same, you know, sort of internalized and, you know, sort of systemic visions and ideas about Malaya's body that she's had all along. And so that the struggle doesn't go away, but she sits with it. Her, you know, we haven't talked about the grandmother, but part of this also is her own mother, right? Her own mother is also sort of increasingly insistent that something be done to change Malaya's body. So Naila, the mother, is sort of receiving that pressure from, from everywhere. And she does go back and forth quite a bit. Um, and ultimately, it's Malaya who ends up making the decision for herself. Yeah. Naila, her mom
1: had named her Nathalie. Yes. And then she takes on a different name. And I'm wondering the extent to which that is analogous or is reflecting Shange. Mm. And Shange going to college and you know mm. shedding a colonial slash
0: patriarchal name. Interesting. You know, I hadn't, well, the connection to Ntozake Shange is always there in my work. She is a phenomenal influence and will always be. I think Shange's sort of renaming of herself, right, is part of a larger move among Black writers, but Black people really in the, you know, 60s and into the 70s and into the current day to really sort of use one's name as an opportunity to reject colonial histories and legacies, right? So absolutely right. And Tasaki Shange does that. Both of my parents also, right, in in their own ways did that. And, you know, if you talk with Black folks who were coming of age and were in their, you know, anywhere from teens to 20s to 30s around that time, it's actually something that was quite common in some ways. Um, And so, for Malaya's parents, that's absolutely part of what was going on, right? Sort of being influenced by Black power movements, by the Black Panther Party, by, you know, again, this sort of swell of reclamation of Black voice, really, right? And sort of the power inherent in Black voicing and Black community. Some of that ends up sort of coming out in the renaming of self, which is why I think naming is a really interesting sort of motif in African-American literature, Is right? It's not uncommon to have folks who go by three or four different names. And, you know, this is what my family calls me, but this is what what they call me at the job. And this is what my partner calls me, right? And all of that. For me as a writer, it's actually really exciting to explore what that might mean in literature. You know, how we name ourselves, how we reject certain names and embrace other names. But above all, the importance of naming, which is why when the doctor cannot even try to get their names right, it's again. It's it's a sign for mm-hmm. Naïla that this guy is, is probably not it. This is a great opportunity for me to ask you about your name. Sure. Yes. I actually. So my mother was born Martha, but uh, you know she was in her twenties at NYU uh, in the seventies and took on the name Mecca. So Mecca is actually her nickname, and they gave Mecca to me as my you know government name. But the irony there is my mom is maybe like. Five six. I'm six feet tall. I'm a big woman, and yet I'm little Mecca, and she's big Mecca because she's Mecca the first. My middle name is Jamila. There, it's interesting. There are members of my family who call me Jamila, and extended family members who call me Jamila. Just sort of unbidden. I don't know exactly, you know, why. What makes some folks think of me as a Jamila and others not? But every time it happens, you know, I I go with it because I think there there must be something there. You know. You talked
1: about hip hop heads and this sort of interspersing of. Music and lyrics. And before we pressed record, I talked to you a little bit about this concept of borrowing. And when is borrowing not borrowing? And is it actually, I'm not 100% sure it's a spectrum, but appropriation. And that comes up in the book. We're talking about the gentrification going on in Harlem in the book and sort of this changing of stores, shops, restaurants, and also some of the commentary that we see going on in. Malaya School with like the white students, mm-hmm. and you know, to what extent were you sort of playing with that line of borrowing versus appropriation?
0: You know, it's interesting. I I don't know that I was playing with a line between borrowing and appropriation. I think you know, in this novel, part of what I'm trying to do is really sort of bring to the fore for the reader a moment in American culture where Black culture is becoming popular culture in a way that you know that's always been the case, right? But in the 90s, we see Black culture sort of becoming popular culture in a way that at least for these kids, it's their culture, right? They So Malaya sort of senses that the music and the culture, the fashion of her neighborhood is suddenly making its way into the halls of her high school. And it's, you know, in that process of moving to the halls of, of her high school. On one hand, there's an excitement there for her because it means part of her world you know, her worlds are coming together, sort of, right? And there's a it creates a space for her in her high school that maybe she hadn't felt there before. And yet at the same time, she is also aware that this is coinciding with the displacement of Black people in Harlem. And, you know, so for me, this is perhaps maybe one of the things that sort of define appropriation and gentrification is this sense of a displacement, right? That it's not about sort of, there's an element of culture that folks share and enjoy. It's about sort of removing a kind of structure of support, of enfranchisement, of power from the group that originates this place or this thing, and that becomes a a commodity or a kind of object of ownership of the appropriating group. And also, I think part of what happens in those processes of appropriation and gentrification is that there's no record. It's like, it's as though it never happened, right? Suddenly, you know, Black culture is just American culture and you can't even say, but wait, that comes from Black culture, right? The history and the origin in Blackness and in Black culture is erased, just like long histories of Black families in Harlem are erased from the neighborhood. And so we see Malaya kind of noticing and observing. She doesn't ever make a kind of clear, explicit commentary, but she absolutely notices that this is part of what's happening around her. And part of why she notices is because she, she feels a connection to that in terms of her, her own lived experience in her body. The sense that she knows her body should be hers and yet increasingly it's feeling like her body can't belong to her, right? And that there's no one to tell the story of how her body really is hers. And she of course ends up having to take that upon herself.
1: Yeah, the source of her hunger. Hmm. You know, I sort of, it's something as a reader I grappled with and in doing reflection and listening and kind of doing a, you know, comparative of other people's take on big girl. Mm-hmm. I wondered, and and I'm asking you as the most intimate friend of, sure. <laughs> of Laya, I love but, you that. know, the extent to which there is this element of intergenerational
0: trauma, mm-hmm. shame. If someone says, what is the source of her hunger? What would you say? You know, you're the first person to have asked me that. And I'm excited about this question. I mean, I've got two answers, right? One is that as a writer, I want the reader to sit with that question because my hope is that as a reader, you've connected with Malaya and you're able to see that whatever the source of her hunger is, is a human hunger, that it, there isn't something sort of pathological or, you know, sort of bizarre or sort of far off. It's not an extraordinary hunger in the sense that it's a hunger that's so great or so profound that one can't relate she's hungry for what we're all hungry for. And my hope is that as you sort of spend time with Malaya, become a friend of hers, right? You see that whatever the source of her hunger is, it's actually not that, again, pathological, it's not abnormal, right? And I hope that even that is maybe unsettling because I think we tend to want to see people in bodies like Malaya's as pathological and abnormal. And so my hope is that in connecting with her, you sort of see that That question of what is the source of her hunger is actually a human question. It's not a question that objectifies her. It's a question that sort of calls us all in to understand all of our bodies differently. For me, the source of her hunger, what she's hungry for is freedom, you know? And it's something that she doesn't get for many reasons. You talked about the kind of sort of generational histories and generational traumas that impact her and the way she looks at her body, the way she sort of lives in her body. But in addition to those, there are the kind of lived experiences that she has being told that she cannot be free in her body. She cannot eat what she wants to eat. She cannot move the way she wants to move. She cannot sit the way she wants to sit. You know, she cannot speak the way she wants to speak. And all of these things are raced and gendered and classed and have to do with the way people perceive sexuality, that all of that messaging at an early age results in a situation where she cannot be free. And in fact, it just sort of compounds. And so we talked about that sort of internal resistance. That resistance is really hungry for freedom. Food is one of the different ways that she sort of, you know, tries to achieve that freedom, right? Sometimes it works for her. Sometimes it doesn't, right? And so really, she's trying to figure out sort of what it's going to take for her to get as free as she possibly can in her body and in her life. Beautiful. Canon. Yes. Yes
1: canonical. I think I've heard you use that term, yes. but I, I've noticed in many of your discussions, the word canon comes up. And again, we, we touched on this a little bit that traditionally we think of this as white male, white male, patriarchal handed down canon of what does literature, and you're seeking to pivot that. Tell the listeners, I'm excited and I think you're onto something.
0: Yeah. Well, it's so funny because I must say, when I think of the canon of literature, that's not who I think of. I never have, and I have to credit my teachers and my mother. For me, my canon is Entezaki Shange, Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde, Jamaica Kincaid, and several others. Right, but that has always been the canon to me. And as I think of them as a canon, I also think of them as a pantheon. Right, that truly those are my North Stars. Those are, and there are, like I said, there are others, and there are others who are not Black women. But though that's my canon, and that's always been my canon, I discovered. All of those writers, when I was very young, I was not that much older than Malaya. And truly, they, for me, have represented literature and what literature is, what it can be, what it can do. So when I think of sort of the meaning of a canon, right, that's what I'm thinking of, sort of foundational voices, foundational figures that set us a kind of grouping of parameters and honestly standards, right? And, you know, and expectations of sort of what the genre can make possible. With that said, as a writer, as a teacher, it's very important to me to kind of convey my sense of the canon, right? And sort of introduce that or reintroduce that and emphasize that as another way of thinking of what it might mean to construct a canon and how a canon might be useful, right? Because then if we're thinking of the standards of that canon, then it's not only about beautiful and critical and sort of politically engaged interactions with or renderings of the world around us, right? It's also about specifically critiques of race, gender, class, and sexuality, you know, emphases on coming of age narratives, right? All of these things that are happening in these works of, you know, tremendous literature that perhaps we don't always see happening in the white patriarchal, cishet, Western literary canon, right? And so for me, I'm glad that my canon is what it is and that they, that will always be my canon. Yeah. Of what accomplishments, awards, recognitions are you most proud? Wow, that's a good question. You know, okay, this is going to sound cheesy, but it's the truth. I feel grateful for, you know, a lot of the kind of external recognitions. And it's been a lot of fun. This last year has been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to kind of, you know, when you win a prize or when you, you know, when you have one of these sort of Again, a kind of external recognition. Often it leads to a cool experience. You know, you get to go to like a cool dinner and you get to meet interesting people. And so I've been very grateful for those experiences. And I guess I can say I've been proud of those as well. But honestly, the thing that I'm proudest of is sort of like the interactions I have with readers. You know, the DMs I get, the emails I get, conversations that I have at readings with folks who have read my book. First of all, full stop, right? Just that, it's still amazing to me. But then also folks who have read the book and who have found it meaningful, you know, I, folks who have said things to me like, this has really changed the way I plan to parent. Or, you know, this helps me to think differently about this person in my family or about my own experience. Or I've been thinking, you know, I'm going to teach this book because my students will really get a lot from it. I mean, those kinds of conversations, it's true. I mean, you know, I'm very proud because honestly, I think a lot of writers write, we write because there are stories that we needed to read, that we have needed to read in the past and that we still need to read. And we write to then feel in community in a way. And so I'm proud to have contributed works that folks felt that they need because I understand that because I needed it too. Yeah. I think I have a quote from you. Reading reminds me of why I write. Writing and reading feed you. It's so true. Yeah. And so when you have those conversations, it's like you've prepared a great meal for someone and you feel proud. That's amazing.
1: That's amazing. I never thought of it as preparing a meal. And I it's such a A giving gift to be able to prepare a meal for someone in that way. I love that. Mamere, you wrote, the woman could turn a phrase like nobody's business. So for the listeners, can you tell us a little bit more about that and the extent
0: to which this is autobiographical? So funny you should ask. I just had the chance to hang out with some of my cousins yesterday and we're recording in Philadelphia, which is where my mom grew up and um, where my grandmother lived. And I was hanging out with some cousins who knew my grandmother and they're like, that was Nana you were writing about. I know that's Nana. So to get your second question first, yes, absolutely. My mare is based on my maternal grandmother. Although I would say there are some meaningful, di- obviously always there are some meaningful differences. My marriage is, is Malaya's grandmother. So it's her mother's mother, Naila's mother. And, you know, she's somebody who, you know, sort of always understood herself as too big and too big for the kind of conventional standards of womanhood and especially of beauty as a Black woman, especially. And so she has sort of raised her daughter, Naila, to think of herself in that way and to think of her body in that way. And Malaya ends up sort of taking in a lot of that messaging. And so for Malaya as a young girl, Maumere definitely represents a kind of sternness, a sense of sort of restricted indulgence, right? A sense of shame. And yet there's something about her, right? There's Especially there's something about the way she uses her voice. She is one of these sort of very kind of harshly critical, but exquisitely critical voices, right? Where she finds a way to insult you you know, they call it reading, right? She reads her. She reads everyone around her, right? She will insult you with just elegance and beauty and, you know, just cutting, cutting wit. And as Malaya gets older, she's kind of conflicted, right? She sort of, she knows she's being insulted. She knows she feels hurt by the things her grandmother is saying. And yet there's some part of her that is able to sort of look out at a distance and see that there's something to this woman's self-expressiveness. And part of Malaya's coming of age is really coming to sort of separate out those aspects of this matriarch, right? That on one hand, there's the shame that she doesn't want, and there's the guilt, and there's the, you know, this, in some ways, a kind of internalized body shame and and self-hatred that Malaya decides she doesn't want to take in. But there's something about her freedom with language that Malaya finds valuable and that she wants to sort of claim as her own. Yeah. Where do men play a role? In this work. They're there. You know, the men that are probably most important to Malaya are Biggie, you know, again, sort of important rapper, kind of cultural figure, who, of course, she never gets to meet, but really does become an important sort of model for her of what is possible in a fat black body. And then her father, Percy, who is a kind of present absence at different parts of the novel and in different ways, but he absolutely is somebody who represents commitment to pleasure and a commitment to. Feeling full, right? Percy is the person who allows her space to really sort of experience a kind of fullness, to enjoy the pleasures of her body, to eat and to enjoy food, um, and to do it in a way that isn't self isolating, at least at first. And so, you know, because he too has his own indulgences that are forbidden and that are, you know, sort of seen as not right for him or not healthy, and yet they bond in that way over this sort of forbidden freedom in the body. And it's something that connects them. It's a very sort of beautiful, tender relationship, even as it's also kind of tenuous for a lot of reasons. But it was important to me to show Malaya have that connection with her father. He provides a different perspective on like what wellness and happiness and wholeness might look like for her. And it's something that is, is crucial that she's not really getting from the, the matrilineal line. When I've spoken with other authors, they talk about falling
1: in love with their characters or getting to know their characters, their characters come with them. It's literally, that's why I mentioned about you being one of the most intimate friends Mm -hmm. of Malaya. Like, how do you see your characters?
0: How do they come with you? How do they stick with you? How do they introduce themselves to you? You know, I really appreciated when you said that. I do see Malaya as a friend. I see her as like a little, you know, like a, almost like maybe a little sister or a little cousin kind of friend, which is interesting because it's true. And I, you know, I don't have a problem acknowledging that many of her experiences overlap with my own, but especially at this point, yeah, she does feel more like a little young friend and someone I care about deeply than me. But in general, yeah, I think all of these characters I've learned a lot from, and Part of that is because I've spent a lot of time getting to know them over years and kind of in fits and starts. This is a novel that I've worked on. First, I had like two solid years to work on it when I was working on my master's. And then since then, it's really been a month at a time, a week at a time, you know, and sort of checking back in and getting to know them and sort of growing with them. That has definitely been my experience. I feel like I've been sort of learning them and and I often think of it as like hanging out with them, you know? I know I'm on the right track when I want to hang out with a character or when a character comes on the scene and I'm excited and I'm like, okay, let's see what they're going to say. Mamera is one of those characters. Like every time I found her sort of, you know, emerging into a scene, I got excited. What wild, wacky thing is going to come out of this woman's mouth? You know what I mean? And I got to really sort of enjoy that process. Shanice, the love interest and best friend is another one who was always kind of mysterious to me. And so I was excited to sort of see what she would do and how she would respond to the situations that she and Malaya were in. How easy, difficult was it for you to write the intimate sexual scenes? Not difficult. Maybe not easy either. You know, one of the things with writing a character like Malaya is it was important to me, again, as we were talking about sort of the sensory landscape of the novel, right? It was important to me to sort of convey how she feels in her body, what it feels like to move in her body. And, you know, because she's in a, a bigger body, a much bigger body, the kinds of language that I needed to use, right? Needed to convey her sense of lightness when she felt light, her sense of heaviness when she felt heavy, the kind of shifting qualities of her movement. And so it was a challenge, I guess, to do that in a sexual scene where we're seeing her sort of discovering these new things about her body, right? And sort of new pleasures in her body Trying to kind of come up with the right language to convey the tone and the mood of that experience for her in a way that invited the reader in, but also didn't sort of sensationalize what was happening, right? You know, I really wasn't interested in any sort of like anatomical descriptions, right? Of sort of, you know, what's happening here. I really wanted you to feel what Malaya was feeling, So it wasn't difficult, but it was a kind of like intellectual challenge. It was almost like how poets work with constraints, right? Sort of like, okay. And it was fun to sort of figure out how am I going to invite the reader into this bodily experience of malayas? And, you know, I teach workshops on writing sex scenes and writing sort of sensory and and sensual experiences in fiction. Part of how I do that is to make sure the reader already knows how Malaya feels in her body. So I don't have to give you a ton of information because you already kind of know what her kind of sensory landscape is like, you know? And so my hope is that by the time we get to those scenes, you're already there with her and you can sort of feel what she's feeling, even as what she's feeling is is new to her.
1: Your voice. Yes. When did you realize you had a voice and when did you start using that voice?
0: You know, this is a really good question because, of course, as a writer, I think of voice as narrative voice first. And so for me, when I think of, of voicing, I think of it as, first and foremost, something that's interior, which is maybe different from what others might mean by a similar question, right? You know, for me, voicing doesn't have to be external, I guess is what I'm saying. So from that perspective, I've always known, you know, like I've always had a kind of close relationship to my own voice. You know, I'm somebody who's sort of always thinking something. And when, you know, they say "penny for your thoughts, like I'll always have something to say, you know what I mean? And I've been aware of that about me since as long as I can remember. In terms of, you know, recognizing that my voice had value is maybe a different question. Had value to others, right, Um, is maybe a different question. But even that I was lucky enough to grow up in a home and in an educational environment where for the most part, I did feel like, you know, my voice was valued. And so for me, the fifth grade was when I understood my voice as a literary voice. And it was when I discovered my canon or my pantheon, right? And sort of recognized that, oh wait, not only do I have a voice and not only can my voice be valuable, but writing is a way to sort of use my voice to make a contribution to this entire sort of chorus of voices that has existed for decades and like I get to be part of it and that was when my understanding of my voice and its importance in my life that's when that really crystallized for me your legacy my hope is that my books will be my legacy my students and their books i hope that that, that will all be part of my legacy also i really do think you know that this is going to sound very cheesy <laughs> i hope that people will remember their interactions with me and that hopefully I brought something to them that maybe shifted the way they thought about the world or themselves, you know, even in sort of subtle, unspeakable ways that they might have carried forward that might have helped them do life differently. The Risa Wrap-Up, special thanks to Mecca for joining me
1: in conversation. And some take-home points from this read, from this conversation, from this book audience. Number one, when a book is well-written, It's well written and you can just sail right through it. And this is one that I sailed right through. One of my besties from college, I sent a copy of this and she told me that she is enjoying it so much. And really, if you are a child or an adult of the 80s and the 90s, you will really appreciate the cultural references. Next, fat phobia and fat shaming. It's real. And what Mecca really is able to capture is what happens in the doctor's office and in medical facilities and what medical professionals, and that's the key word professionals do say and cause patients and caretakers to feel. We can do better. I know we can do better. Finally, this is a book about love, audience. And at the end of the day, what everybody is seeking is to love and to be loved. That's it for this week. See you next time. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano Deporto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.